Heavenly Father, um, thank you for my friends here. Thank you for bringing us together today on this morning, Father, to hear your words, not my words, but to hear from your scripture. And I pray right now for me, Father God, that you'd give me wisdom and strength in communicating exactly what needs to be spoken of over the passage we're looking at today, and that you would grant my friends here a glimpse of the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ in his profound love for us on the cross and give us a passion to communicate that truth, that love to every single person we meet and know. I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, uh, we come to a scene where Paul has found his way into the Greek city of Corinth. And Corinth, while he is there, he is preaching the word. And I want to read this brief passage before we dive into our text today. This is Acts 18, starting with verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia... Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he, Paul, stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So we have, uh, for the last few weeks, been talking about the word of God. And we've been really focusing, uh, I think for about five weeks now, four weeks, (coughs) excuse me, on the significance and purpose of the Word of God in the life of the believer. And what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be shifting, as we come to an end of the series next week on Easter, we're going to be shifting um, from looking at the direct effect that God's Word has on people who trust in Jesus Christ to how the believer is called to use God's Word to witness Jesus, just like Paul was doing in this passage. And we have here in this passage, Paul and his ministry to the city of Corinth, preaching the gospel and planting a church. And what's amazing about this scene here, it's very profound if you consider it, this is a city that has no understanding or comprehension of the gospel. A church is being born in a place that has never heard about Jesus before. We don't see that in America because of what America is and how long Christianity has has come through America. This is profound. And yet Paul, even when he's seeing God miraculously transform people and change hearts, he feels something that everyone in this room who loves Jesus has felt at one point or another. And that feeling is fear. He's afraid. Even though Corinthians are coming to believe and be baptized and a church is burgeoning right now, he's afraid that the emergence of Christianity in the city of Corinth is going to lead to the one thing it always leads to in every single city he preaches the gospel in, and that is persecution and suffering. And based on this passage, we see that at some point, Paul is very scared and disheartened. 
So much so that the Lord Jesus appears to him one night in a vision and tells him something incredible. Listen to these words again. Do not be afraid, Paul, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. Jesus is with you, Paul, and no one will attack you to harm you for, this is Jesus' reason why he's going to provide Paul with protection, I have many in this city who are my people. So think, imagine this, put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. The risen Christ, the Lord of the universe, who has defied death, comes to you in a vision and tells you, Paul, I don't want you to be afraid. Don't be afraid. I promise you that I will be with you. I promise you that I will protect you. I have you. And the reason why I'm going to protect you in the city of Corinth, Paul, is I have many in this city who are my people. There are people who belong to me in this city. And you're going to preach, and they're going to believe, and they're going to come to me, and you can't be silent. You have to keep on speaking the gospel. Do not be silent, Paul. And so when I hear Jesus commanding Paul in Acts 18, I have to ask is this his expectation for me? Is this what he's saying to me through the whole counsel of Scripture? To keep speaking, to not be silent. Is that just his desire for Paul and maybe an elite group of evangelists and missionaries? Or is that his desire for everyone who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ? And we see the answer repeatedly throughout all of the New Testament in Acts 1.8, Jesus is very clear. He's talking to his disciples, of whom we all are, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, that they will be his witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the command of Christ, to the end of the earth, and he meant it. That's where the gospel is going to be preached. So wherever disciples of Jesus goes, they speak about Jesus. They witness about Jesus. But if we're real, let's just be real for a second. This is tough. This is a difficult thing to do. We feel fear about it. We don't want to be shamed. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be humiliated. Jesus isn't popular. It's not cool. And... We feel a kind, probably, for at least some of you, if not all of you, I feel this, an inadequacy. I can't do what Paul did. I can't communicate all the things I want to communicate about this gospel that Paul did. And so this is what I want to focus on today. Paul is in Corinth, and I want to ask these questions. How do we preach the gospel? How do people come to Christ and believe and are saved through the word of God? What does that look like? And, and what exactly happened in Corinth? When we see a passage like this described, it's a narrative. What happened when Paul preached? And thanks be to God, he explains to us exactly what happens in 1 Corinthians, starting with verse 17. So if you have your Bibles, please turn them to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17 where Paul will tell us exactly how he heard the command of Jesus in the vision and obeyed. <clears throat> so 1 Corinthians 1, we'll read verse 17 and 18 first. Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul, after clarifying to the Corinthian church, hey, I didn't come to you to baptize people, I came to preach the gospel he begins to tell us about how he did it, how he preached the word of 
the cross. He says he didn't preach it with eloquent words of wisdom. In other words, he doesn't use Greek rhetoric or a communication style or some sort of strategic eloquent strategy as a language when he preaches. He's, he's not interested in entertaining people. And he's not even interested really in providing a basic education for people in this preaching. Paul says, were he to preach the gospel in these ways, he would empty the word of the cross of its power. Empty the cross of Christ of its power. That is a wild thought to consider that there is a way that we can talk about Jesus that removes every ounce of power from its ability to save people. Have you ever considered that? I think sometimes we're so caught up in, I just need to say, God bless you, or Jesus, or make an inroad in the gospel. And I don't think we reflect oftentimes that even in saying something gospel-related, we could be completely nullifying the power that the gospel has so that it doesn't have any help for the listener. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He explains that he's telling us that the word of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness, it's folly to those who are perishing. But that same gospel, that same word of the cross, is for those who are being saved, the power of God. So he's dividing the world really into two categories of people. He's saying that there are ultimately in this world, if you were to go up high enough and divide the world into the most basic categories possible, there are two categories in humanity that these would all fall into. Those who receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who do not receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. One kind, Paul says, is being saved and the other kind is perishing. These are the same exact categories. If you were with us in the first week, we had this series, 2 Corinthians 4, same exact categories. Those who are being saved, those who are perishing. Paul used this language often. And so when the gospel is preached, what Paul is saying here is that there is a way in which, kind of like a sword, like last week, the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The sword comes down and it divides people. It creates one of two responses. There's only two responses. One kind hears the gospel and says, that's stupid and foolish. I will have nothing of it. And the other kind hears the gospel, and in that moment, words become power, and they are transformed. And in Paul's argument here, there is no middle ground. It's either a miracle or it's not. And so our question is why? What, what is going on when Paul preaches the gospel? How does God do this? When Paul preaches the gospel in Corinth, create a division in terms of the response. Well, he explains starting in verse 19. Let's look at it. Paul says, For, in other words, take into consideration everything I said just now, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This is God talking. So Paul says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So Paul here quotes the prophet Isaiah speaking on behalf of God and God is saying here to Isaiah, to the people of Israel, to the church, <laughs> he's saying, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. And I'm going to thwart the discernment of the discerning. This is God's promise in his word. And it is Paul's explanation for why there are two diametrically opposite responses to the preaching of the same gospel. Same word goes out from Paul and two different responses appear. And this is important because what it tells us right off the bat is that this isn't an accident. That there are two responses is not an accident. It's not a surprise to God. It is God's doing because he's promised to do it. 
through Isaiah, he said, this is what I'm going to do. And now he's doing it. And to show us what God is doing, Paul is going to ask the Corinthian church in this letter some questions. He's going to ask them, where are the wise in your church? Look around your church. Where are the people who are profoundly wise? Where's the scribe in the church? Where are the debaters in your congregation? And his point is, this is a rhetorical question, there aren't any. There are not. They're not in the category of the church, the, those who are being saved. And Paul says that God, in, in, in showing this to us, is destroying it, the wisdom of the wise. And he is thwarting the discernment of the discerning. In verse 20, God, uh, Paul says here, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So God is making foolish the wisdom of the world. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean all wisdom is bad? Absolutely not. The wisdom of the world here is not an honest and sincere pursuit of the truth that is willing to humbly approach the reality of God with an open heart. That is not the wisdom of the world here. Paul is talking here about a kind of arrogance and presumption that is in a, a disposition that all humanity has that they don't need God for any of the answers. They can do it on their own. Thank you very much. That's what the wisdom of the world is. It, it's a kind of wisdom that, that kind of, in a way, spits in God's face and like a, a petulant child says, I don't need you anymore. And I wish you were dead. And then treats him like that. That's the wisdom of the world. That's what Paul is talking about here. And Paul is saying that through the gospel, this word of the cross, this foolishness, God is taking that arrogance and that disposition in the heart of humans and he is making it foolish. And then he says how in verse 21. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. This is a critical verse because it tells us again God is not caught off guard that this is the response that he's getting from people. He is not caught off guard. In fact, in the wisdom of God, it was to be this way. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God. This is part of God's design and purpose. And we're going to see why before the end of today. That human wrought efforts rooted in self-reliance and focused on self-exaltation in the pursuit of knowledge will ultimately lead to unbelief. It will lead to unbelief. This was done in the wisdom of God. And therefore, Paul says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, through the foolishness of the gospel, to save everyone who would believe it. It pleased God to do this. Now, Paul is going to tell us how this plays out when he actually preaches the gospel next. So look at verse 22. He's going to give us a roadmap for why their responses are like this. Paul says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews, and it is folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So again, Paul is telling us how it is the wisdom of this world creates a rejection of the gospel. And he says that it does it in two ways. He uses the Jews and the Greeks as an example. And he is really, when he talks about Jews and, and Gentiles or Jews and Greeks, he is really talking about all of humanity. All the Jewish people from the Old Testament and as they come into the New Testament, all of the Gentile people that have um, no understanding of God or outside the covenant of God. And He's taking the entire world in, this, in these two categories. 
And he's saying that these are the responses in the wisdom of the world. Jews desire signs about the Christ, the Messiah, the King. They want a sign. They want some kind of indication. And so when Paul preaches Christ crucified, a Jewish person hears that the king is dying. You're, you're talking about a dying king? Crucified Christ? That's a major problem for them. It is a stumbling block for them, and there is no way in their mind that that could be the Christ. There's no way in their mind that that's the Savior. And Greeks, Gentiles, respond in the same way. They reject it, but differently. They seek wisdom, and they desire a kind of intellectual solution. They want a pathway. We can do it on our own. Get out of the way. I just want to have that knowledge. Give me the knowledge to get to salvation. That's their understanding. They want enlightenment through their own pursuit. No God involved. And so the idea that there is a God, a real God, and he became a man and died for them, that idea is utterly absurd. It is ridiculous. What kind of God would become a man and die on a cross, a Roman instrument of torture and humiliation in order to save people. That's foolish. And so to the Greek mind, Christianity is the most absurd thing you can conceive of. That's what Gentile responses look like. And if Paul stopped there with those two responses, representing how humanity as a whole comes to the crucified Christ, the gospel, the word of the cross, this would be tragic. But it isn't. Thank God there's a third response from both Jews and Gentiles. And this group Paul refers to from both Jews and Gentiles are those who are called. Now, in a way, everyone is called. Everyone hears the gospel. Come, repent, trust in Christ Jesus. But this is different because those who are called here, to them, when they hear the crucified Christ, when they hear the gospel, Christ becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the call saves them. They don't reject the gospel, they receive it. So despite the foolishness of the gospel, as is, it is proclaimed across the wisdom of the world, and all these people reject it and say, this is foolishness, I don't want it, yet those who are called are saved. To those people, the word of the cross is not a stumbling block, and it is not foolish. It is instead the power of God and the wisdom of God. And Paul tells us why that's the case in this last verse, 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God stronger than men. In other words, God's foolishness and weakness in preaching this gospel message and saving sinners is greater than any wisdom or discernment or knowledge or power mankind can ever devise. The world does not have anything like this. It is powerful. And Paul explains to us why God has gone about doing it this way. Why, why is it this, this way? Why isn't it just something else? Why do it this way? Paul's going to explain in verses 26 through 29. He says, for consider your calling. So he's turning to the Corinthian church now. He's explained what happens when the word is preached. And then he says, consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So Paul begins to explain what it means, 
when he says those who are called. This third group doesn't reject the gospel. They receive the gospel. They believe like Paul tells us we need to in in verse 21. And he explains this to the Corinthian church in this letter by asking them more, or by stating things about them. He's not asking them questions anymore. He's stating facts that he knows about them because he's been with them. And he says, reflect on your own calling. Think about how God made the church. Not many in the church are wise by worldly standards. Not many are powerful by worldly standards or noble. That's just not who you have in the congregation. And they know it. As the the reader of the letter is reading it, they're looking around at their friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're like, he's actually right. We don't have any debaters here. We don't have any scribes. There's no one special in this group. We're just a bunch of nobodies who are loved by God. And then Paul tells them here why God is doing it that way. Why aren't there many wise or powerful people in the church? Why is this such a rarity in the church? Paul says the reason is because God chose foolish people to save. God chose weak people to save. God chose what is low and despised in the world to save. That was a choosing on his part. Even things, he says, that are not. In other words, things that are are so low in the world that their existence is almost questionable. And Paul says, that's who God saved in Corinth. I was there when it happened. I know it. And so whatever we might think about the word God chose in this context, I know that there's controversy around what that actually could mean. Uh, When it comes to this passage, I think four things are very clear about that phrase. The first is this, that when we think about this calling, we recognize that God is the ultimate source of this calling. It is God who is the source of this calling. It's not Paul ultimately. It's not Paul's ministry. It is God who is the source. It says God chose. That's how the calling originates. That's where it comes from. It didn't come from anyone or anything prior to God. God is the ultimate source of the calling. The second thing that I think is clear from this passage is that this calling isn't something you can earn or merit. This isn't something you can accomplish. I mean, I think that's the main point of this entire text. It's made vividly plain throughout that the exact opposite is true. We can't earn this because it appears from just casting a net over who are in the church at Corinth, they're on the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to people you would choose. They are not, they are, they are weak people. They are foolish people. They are low and despised, which is stunning because he says God chose them. That's who God chose. It is based on nothing that they brought to the table. They don't have anything to bring to the table. They're at the the bottom of the barrel. The third thing I think we can say about this call is that it is effectual. Effectual. In other words, the call doesn't fail. When the call goes out from God through Paul and Paul preaches the gospel, it achieves its goal. God's word doesn't return empty. Verse 24, earlier which we saw, he says, to those who are called. That's the people, that's the category who receive the gospel. There isn't any other group of people who are called and don't receive it. Those who are called believe and are saved. None of them reject the gospel. The call is is so powerful and so glorious and so beautiful that it does not return empty. It grips the person and they fall in love with Jesus. That's the third thing. The fourth thing, I think, this passage thing, and this is the final one, is I believe that we can say with certainty that this call, this method of saving people is not a random turn of affairs. It's not a a random event. It's not an accident that this happened. It is God's design. He determined and, and designed to save humanity in this way through this call. And we know this because Paul gives us the reason why God called weak people, why he chose weak and foolish people, why he chose the low and the despised in this world. Verse 27 and 28 tell us, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. Why? To bring to nothing the things that are. This is God's intentional design. It's not an accident. He didn't say, well, I'm surprised it turned out this way. This is God's design, and he's doing it to bring shame to the strong and to the, and to the wise. Now, again, these are not people. These are not people who are pursuing truth from a posture of humility. These are not people who earnestly desire to know what is true in the world. These are people who are seeking wisdom and strength arrogantly. And it is clear that at the end, God did this so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that. Everything you see on the top is so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, which is wild when you consider that. At the end of the day, God's ultimate goal in salvation is that no human being would get up and say, that was, I, I'm here because of me. It was me that did this. I made a decision. I stuck with it. I'm awesome. That is exactly what God is preventing by doing it this way. Anyone who's in the presence of God on the final day will be there because God is merciful and loving. There will be no boasting on the final day because the call is what accomplishes God's purpose. Nobody else does. It is the call that does it. So Paul's point is that there isn't anything worthy in us. When we think about how God saved us and redeemed us, there isn't anything worthy in us that initiated God's calling. It is not something you can earn. It is not something you can accomplish. It is a free gift from God, and it is received by grace through faith. Even our capacity and inclination to trust Him isn't something that we manufactured. It is a gift from God. It's unmerited favor. It's not something we can earn or something that we've done. Now, Paul, at the end of this chapter, next two verses or next verse or two, is going to tell us ultimately why. He's going to summarize the purpose of salvation. Let's look at it here. Why did God do it this way? He says, and become, because of him, because of God, you, Corinthian church, you, risen hope, are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, this is his reason why God made Christ wisdom to us, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This phrase at the beginning and because of him, really in the Greek, it would read, and from him. And from him. In other words, us being in Christ Jesus, us being chosen in verse 27 above that, us being called in verse 24, us being among those who are being saved in verse 18, all of that, according to verse 30, is because of Christ. It is from God. He's the reason we have righteousness. He's the reason we have sanctification. He's the reason that ultimately one day we will have redemption for our bodies and our souls. He's the reason. All those awesome glories that Paul rattles off in this text come from God alone. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the purpose of the gospel. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's a play on Jeremiah 29, 23, 24. Listen to this passage from, from the Old Testament. Paul's kind of using and tweaking here to explain his point. He says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declared the Lord. So what this passage in 1 Corinthians 
means is that the ultimate purpose of the gospel is not to save people. That is a purpose. That is a massively critical and beautiful purpose. It is an amazing purpose, but that's not ultimately the main purpose of the gospel, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. The main purpose of the gospel is to create worshipers, people who boast in the Lord because they know, I didn't do this. He did it for me, all of it from front to back. And this is why God has conducted salvation this way. It's not ultimately about us. No, we participate in it with joy. It is ultimately about God and his desire to create worshipers. God says here, I am the Lord, the one true God, and I practice steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. If it wasn't for him, those words wouldn't even be in our vocabulary. He's the reason that this happens. And so salvation is a remarkable display of God's power and glory so that on the final day, on the final day, whoever will boast will boast in the Lord. Now, I want to be clear. The gospel, the gospel saves people from a very real horror, a very real hell. And it does that through a very real Savior, Christ Jesus. But what Paul is describing in Jeremiah and in 1 Corinthians is that when God applies it to people, he sees our sin and our brokenness and does not assume or expect that we can earn anything or accomplish anything on our own merit through any wisdom that we might practice, through any pathway in the wisdom of the world, but instead he comes to us in the gospel. He picks us up off the ground, cleans us up from the muck of our own selfishness and sin, and then he calls us with his love so powerfully that we become his. And he secures in that moment everything we need for us to be with him forever. That's the gospel. That's what Paul preached. That's the word of the Christ, the word of the cross. Now, what I want to do next is this. I want to take the gospel that we just talked about and how God saves people. And I want to, I want to ask, what does that have to do with us today? We're all redeemed people. We all love Jesus. I'm going to assume that. If you're not, I hope that you're encouraged too. Uh, believe and trust in Christ today. But what do we do with the message, the word of the cross? What can we learn from Paul as he preached the gospel in Corinth? And how do we do this without doing what he said at the very beginning, emptying the word of its power? How do we not empty the word? How do we preach faithfully so that the word is powerful and people who are called come to faith? He's going to explain to us in 1 Corinthians, the next passage after this, chapter 2, verse 1. So listen to this brief section, then we'll talk about it. Paul says, when, And I, when I came to you, brothers, in Corinth, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He's already told us this. This makes sense. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's description of his preaching here is so critical for us to understand because it tells us that all of us, anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, who knows the gospel, can communicate the gospel. Anyone can. Paul knows that the power doesn't lie within him 
or within his, in his ability to speak or use eloquent words or to argue someone into the kingdom. He knows that's not the case. It has to come from God alone. If Paul were to believe that the power came from him, there would be no Corinthian church and there would be no letter to the church at Corinth. This letter would not exist. But Paul knows it wasn't me who did this. When I preached, it wasn't me who did this. It was God who did this. And it wasn't because the Corinthian people were spiritually adept or sensitive to spiritual things or, or just kind of were good enough to know, yeah, that's true. That's not what happened. Paul said they were low and despised. They were foolish. God is the reason that they were saved. And this means that any one of us can preach this message just like Paul the same power that he had. Notice he says, can we go to the slide before this? Notice he says he preached, he knew nothing among them except this, Christ and him crucified. Christ crucified. All he knew when he spoke to them was the gospel. And he's like, that was sufficient. That was sufficient to save people. And so this is huge. You do not need to be a preacher. You do not need to be an evangelist. You do not need to be a professional evangelist. You do not need to be a missionary to be an instrument in the hand of God for the divine call to go out through you to somebody else's soul. All you need is to know Christ crucified. How did you come to know Jesus? Through the gospel. And that means you are as qualified as the Apostle Paul to communicate the word of the cross to someone. And Paul makes it clear by telling us that despite anything, any kind of theological training he had, when he preached to the Corinthian church, he preached the gospel in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Why tell that to them? <laughs> I was scared when I was talking to you about Jesus. Scared to death. So much so that Jesus had to come into a vision and tell me not to be afraid. I was scared. But here's the thing. His fear did not keep him silent. He was scared, but it didn't keep his mouth closed. If you remember when Jesus came to him in that vision, he said, do not be afraid, Paul. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I'm going to be with you. I will protect you. I'm going to be by you. Keep speaking. Don't be silent. And so I think what that command of Christ reveals to us in this passage right here too is that in our own lives, the fear we feel, are we recognizing that we're, we need to trust his promise? We need to trust in God. And is our fear leading to a kind of silence when Jesus has told us through this text don't be silent, I will be with you. There are people who belong to me, and my people. And they're in Kingsgate, they're in Kirkland, they're in Seattle, they're all over the place, and they belong to me. Keep speaking the gospel. Keep speaking the truth. And for those who are called, that gospel will become the wisdom and the power of the living God. This is God's promise to us. There isn't a person who is so far from God that the power of the gospel cannot save them. That's a remarkable thing. But do we believe it? Jesus and Paul are telling us we, we need to. We need to believe that. So to close, what I want to do by way of encouragement is to read you a passage from 2 Timothy 1, Paul's letter to Timothy, a young pastor in the church of Ephesus. And what I want you to do while I'm reading this to you is to do your absolute best to imagine that Paul is writing this letter to you personally. This is to you. This is for your encouragement. And I want you to listen to how he summons your confidence in the proclamation of the gospel. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. Do not be ashamed. By the way, Paul is, well, he's going to say it here in a second, writing this from prison, about to be killed. For the gospel. 
he has a limited number of days left and he's going to lose his head for preaching the word of the cross. Listen to his words. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now he has, now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now think about this. This is you. He's talking about you. If your faith is in Christ Jesus, this is who you're, he's talking to you. And he says, before the ages even began, before the ages even began, God knew you and loved you deeply. He loved you. And he set his love on you by calling you to a holy calling, setting you apart. Not because of anything you did or would ever do. It was before the ages began. He did this because of his own purpose and grace, his own purpose. There is no single foundation in the world greater for our witness of the gospel than that. Before the ages began, he loved me. And eternity passed. Before there was a universe, God knew you and he loved you. That's how you became a Christian. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy here. You, you became a believer because God loved you and his love for you never had a beginning. So the confidence that we should have that the gospel can save people, anyone we preach the gospel to, comes from God's love, which we have experienced firsthand. Not an ability to speak eloquently, not a, a theological training, not anything that we can get can more equip us for this love than knowing that he saved us this way. Knowing that he loved us and we become instruments of a call that was conceived before galaxies existed. It's profound. And if he saved us in this way, how will he not keep his promise to be with us always, even when we open our mouths and speak the gospel? If his love had no beginning, why do we think that it's going to end as soon as we open our mouths to tell somebody about Jesus? If you get one thing from the entire passage of 1 Corinthians, I hope it's this. The word of God is powerful enough to save every single, any single human being in the world. No one is beyond his power. And we know that because he saved us. And we didn't have anything to give them. We're going to be taking communion here in a moment. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus, I would ask that you receive these elements in worship and consider the cross, consider the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but do that through the lens of what we talked about today, your own calling. How God did not look at your accomplishments or your achievements or anything that you brought to the table, but rather he actually looked at the darkest part of who you are. He looked into your sin and everything you've thought of, everything you've said, everything you've done that you regret and that you will regret tomorrow and years into the future. And he looked into that darkness and he said, I can save this person. I will save this person and I will do everything I need to on the cross to guarantee that they will be with me forever. That happened to you if your faith is in Christ Jesus. And it is a promise from God for everyone who is called by his name. The gospel isn't a cute story. The gospel isn't, isn't this clever kind of pitch or argument. It is a foolish thing. 
and that you don't think it is, is a miracle. It is a foolish truth that in it has more power than any other worldview in the world combined, all of them combined. And what we need to recognize is that outside these doors, there are eternities that are hanging in the balance. Eternities. And we as believers, because he's redeemed us, are called to be a mouthpiece of the word of cross to stop them from hanging in the balance and to speak the truth to them in love, to speak to them the word of the cross. There are people, and you know them right now, people I know are coming into my mind right now. It breaks my heart. They don't know him. They do not know him. And they need to hear about him. And so what I would ask that you pray today as you take communion and as you worship is that God would give us, all of us, a kind of boldness and courage that refuses to be silent. No more silence. And that we would remember what Jesus promised to Paul. That's a promise for us. He promises it to us in Matthew 28. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And he will never break that promise. He will never break that promise. Let's pray. Lord, you are such a gracious and loving God. And you understand us, even now, you understand us in the weakness of our flesh. It is difficult to talk about Christ with people who don't know him, especially in the context that we live in, where there is a kind of low-grade hostility. I just, I pray, Father God, that you would grant each and every person in this room, and who can hear my voice, a, a, a glimpse at what you meant when you told Timothy through Paul's letter to him that our redemption, our salvation came because of your purpose and your grace before the ages began. Such an awesome, awesome reality. And I pray that you, and giving us that glimpse, would make it the bedrock the foundation for us to feel a kind of supernatural confidence that we speak the word of the cross faithfully, in love, in grace, and that you, Father, send that call and claim your children. I pray that you would give us that vision of your awesomeness and the glory of your love for us that it never had a beginning. You never started loving us. Even before we existed, you always loved us. And that was the wellspring that caused you to turn our hearts to you. Help us to see this reality today as we worship, Father God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.